February 21st. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. I'm your host, Salma Karashi, and today we've got Catherine Wynn-Stanley with us. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Catherine is professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus. Her research explores the basis of cognitive function and impulse control at a neural, neurochemical, and molecular level using rodent analogs of human neuropsychological tests. And around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Matt Wannett. Howdy. And for just a little bit, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. Hi, guys. Catherine, your recent work has been tackling the interplay between... um, poor or, I guess, non-probabilistic decision-making and addiction and addiction risk, I guess, using um, gambling-like decision-making as an index of risky choice. This is very, this is what we talked about today, so that's the stuff I'm talking about. I know that you have many tentacles and many different things. Um, to, so just to get us going here, can you say something about how neuroscientists view the current taxonomy of addiction? Because I'm often guilty, only me, no one else here, is often guilty of generalizing mechanisms of cocaine addiction to not just all substance use disorders, but to addiction in general. And um, there are many flavors of addiction, like gambling disorder, for example. So how different are these behavioral disorders in the hands of researchers who are studying actual brain mechanisms? That is an excellent question. Um, so I think many of us are guilty um, of doing exactly what you just described, which is working with one substance like cocaine and extrapolating the findings uh, from a study using a single addictive drug and saying, oh, well, this is sort of representation of addictions in general. Um, there are definitely some really clear distinctions between the actions of opiates and stimulants in terms of changes in neuroplasticity, for example, um, uh, in the you know, key areas of the reward system, uh, like nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area. But there has been, if you look, I think the statistic is correct, there's something like 90% of addictions research is done with cocaine, um, which is not, I mean, cocaine is certainly a very problematic drug. I mean, you know, no one's saying that cocaine addiction is trivial, but in the current uh, state of affairs with, you know, opioid, the opioid epidemic that's hitting North America and um, the deregulation of, uh, decriminalization of cannabis use, um, both in, in different states here in the US and also uh, nationwide in Canada. I think we really should be turning our attention to maybe studying those drugs in a bit more of a reasonable proportion in our in our neuroscience work. But the issue with uh, those compounds, and you know, it's actually really easy comparatively and cheap to get hold of cocaine. Um, so, at the risk of taking this off on some mad tangent, um, there is a real problem, I think, in restricting researchers' access to drugs for research purposes. So. David Nutt spoke about this at length when he came to do a, a talk at UBC. About, and he was one of the people who's really pioneered looking at psilocybin as a potential treatment and other drugs for depression. And even though the UK government said it was possible to get hold of these drugs for research purposes, they made the regulatory burden so enormous that most groups just simply gave up and wouldn't bother completing like the three years worth of nightmare paperwork to get hold of this stuff. Um, so I'm amazed to discover, for example, in Canada, even though we have now just legalized cannabis, 
um, that for me to get hold of THC for research purposes. And I think there's a there's a huge public interest in knowing more about what THC does to the brain, particularly during adolescence, and you know what it is to you know what does THC use disorder look like in an animal model, for example. <clears throat> I, I have to fill in so many forms. Like I've I've tried and stalled twice. Yet to get hold of cocaine is much much easier for me for research purposes. So I think there is there can be a lot of reasons why the research community gets skewed towards certain things. It's also really easy to to work with as a compound. Um, the animals tolerate it really well. They self administer it really well. You don't have to worry about physiological withdrawal, which you do with the opiates. Um, and so, yeah, but there are definitely differences between the addictive potential and the neurobiological mechanisms of these drugs. So nicotine is really addictive and re- really available, but mm-hmm. animals don't like it as much or something. Why, can, why nobody studies nicotine? I think it, people do do nicotine self-administration studies. Again, nicotine is touch toxic, so it's actually harder to work with than cocaine, um, even though you don't... I believe you don't need to have a, well, you don't need to have a license to get hold of it, which should make it easier. But it also lacks that kind of sexiness appeal in a way. You know, if you're working with, you know, if you're trying to target a, a, an illicit population, you know, a, a problem that, that the public is more likely to buy into as being really difficult, I think it's easier to say we're studying this horrible drug that's illegal and it's having all these dangerous impacts. Whereas nicotine use up until, um, you know, we can talk maybe about e-cigarettes, but nicotine use is declining, I think, amongst young people. Um, smoking... Scientifically, nicotine. isn't nicotine fascinating because it yes. has almost no side effect, and <laughs> <laughs> yet it's super addictive. Yeah, it is definitely um, an interesting drug to work with, and my some of my colleagues in Holland have shown similar relationships between... Um, uh, impulsive behaviors in rodents and nicotine self-administration as uh, other groups have seen with cocaine. So I think nicotine sort of falls, even though it has a very different mechanism of action, so binds to cholinergic receptor, it is, I think, more similar to the stimulants than it is to like the opiates in terms of its of the, of the behavioral traits that might confer vulnerability to, to like nicotine dependency. Um, and I probably know most about um, the relationship between abuse of a substance and impulse control problems, but we actually had a, there's a very small organization, which is really awesome, I think, called the International Society for Research into Impulsivity, and we have our very small meeting um, just before biological psychiatry each year, and the, the target of one of the last meetings was to figure out whether impulsivity had anything to do with the opioid epidemic, because it's pretty well established now that high impulsivity is associated with abuse of a variety of substances, you know, and it's also associated with gambling disorder, but the strongest relationship is definitely with stimulant abuse. Um, and when we actually got people to dig into the literature and figure out, you know, is there a strong relationship either in humans or in rats between high levels of different types of impulsivity and opiate abuse, there really isn't. So in terms of um, impulsivity predicting use, not really. Can intake of opiates lead to impulse control deficits? Potentially. Um, and can poor impulsivity lead to relapse? That seemed to be more likely. But just the, the strong relationship between high impulsivity and greater likelihood to use that is seen in the stimulant population, that didn't seem to be present in the, in the opiate users, either in the 
human opiate users or and the, the emerging data looking at sort of prospective studies trying to track individuals um, over time and see if they, they became dependent, or in the more controlled animal models. Why so that's a really big difference. That would be, why do we believe that there's a single common mechanism underlying addiction instead of like one for each drug? Because there was an influential review article written by Peter Kalibus back in the 1990s of a final common pathway of addiction, and I think it was heavily influential. And <laughs> <laughs> we know it's not the case, and I think he would walk away from that, but... Man, I remember that in graduate school. That was like required reading of Final Common Pathway. All drugs of abuse are going to do this, even though at that time it was predominantly cocaine. But there was enough of uh, pieces put together that made it seem like. Isn't, isn't the, though, the fact that all drugs of abuse, including behavioral addictions, result in increased catecholamine release? The mechanism driving that increase in catecholamine release is nonetheless, is, is still, is different, but the end result is still that some catecholamines release is increased. Is that not the case? No, I think, anymore? no, I don't, I think, okay, so I think it is true that all addictive substances at some point are going to drive the dopamine system. Um, could be norepiosa. Oh, it could, yeah, and it's not only going to be the dopamine system. Yeah. So yeah, sort of the monoamines and, and the catecholamines. I think in terms of understanding the role that those neurotransmitters play in mediating the problematic parts of addiction, there are some who would argue that there is, there's been way too much focus on dopamine and not nearly enough on other neurotransmitters and brain mechanisms that are changed by these addictive substances. So there is a bit of a dopamine bias and there are pieces of evidence um, that are sort of overlooked, you know, the fact that there are some animals where you, you, you can knock out key elements of the dopamine signaling pathway and yet they'll still self-administer addictive drugs, so what's that all about? Um, in terms of, to get back to the question, why, why might we have thought or might we still think that there are these common behavioral traits that, that could be associated with addictions in general? A lot of addictions are comorbid. So, like, for example, there's very rarely in majority of countries pure gambling disorder um so most people who gamble also abuse other um also abuse substances as you say not other substances so the fact that they are comorbid may make you think there are common traits leading to these things or at least that they could synergistically interact so if you're more likely to gamble um are you therefore does gambling either promote or encourage the use of nicotine or alcohol and does, does that promote or encourage the you know problematic gambling behavior um or is this just a, you know, like a circumstance thing? It just so happens that you can drink in casinos, and so, yeah, you'll drink more because you're gambling, and you're gambling and you'll drink more. Or are there, you know, shared vulnerabilities? And you can sort of try and get at that with um, some animal modeling. Um, but also, just from a phenomenological perspective, taking almost any drug, with the exception of maybe caffeine, but maybe not, you know, it, it is a kind of a risky thing to do. I mean, it's... You know, particularly if you're talking about sampling something illicit at a party when you're an adolescent, um, part of the appeal is the danger and the risk and stepping outside of the norms and the boundaries. So being impulsive and being a risk taker, just sort of, it, you know, Occam's razor style, you think, well, that kind of makes sense as a shared vulnerability market. Now, whether your friend happens to have, you know, oxycodone on him or, you know, uh, Adderall, um, if that's the first drug that you abuse, is it just chance? Um, or would you only have ever become dependent if it had been a drug that actually syncs with your, you know, your biological makeup? And that's sort of the bigger question. Like, is there, are there 
individual vulnerabilities beyond and above something like big like impulsivity. Yeah, if you're more, if you're more impulsive, you're more likely to do a whole bunch of ill-advised things. Um, but whether or not you stick in a in a in a place of being addicted to something, what what is going to determine that? So then, is the, is the question then become is addiction kind of like cancer? It's just a common term. It's just a common term for um, what may actually be a number of different diseases that have that present with the same symptoms. Potentially, I think that's a really interesting idea of um, treating, you know, opiate versus stimulant versus nicotine. Addiction versus alcoholism as you know almost like subtypes of of cancer. I mean, alcoholism is interesting because even from the way it's funded, it's funded through a totally research into alcoholism is funded through a totally different agency than research into other dependent substances. Um, which you know maybe it, it's not really the case in Canada, but um, what happens in the U.S. does tend to have a huge impact on the way in which the rest of the world looks at these problems because you know, there's just a concentration of funding and of research that happens here. Um, if that's just you know accidental or if there is actually like a you know a, is, it, is it more than just politics that these things are separated? I mean you could argue that you know alcohol is a very different kind of beast. I mean it affects like a crazy amount of neurotransmitter systems in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways. And of course it's legal um, with many other addictive substances. People like Take drugs are usually not too selective. I mean, it's pretty rare somebody imagine somebody saying, "Hey, man, you want to do a line of coke?" And the answer would be, "Oh no, I'm hooked on downers." I mean, that happened in a famous Cheech and Chong. But I don't think that's a really a normal thing to hear. Yeah, and I think definitely. I mean, it, the people say the same thing about um, about preferred uh, ways of gambling as well. So people who gamble on sports, you know, on on-track sports betting, that's a very different sensation, environment, you know, phenomenology than someone who's just, you know, playing electronic gambling machines. And while people may have their preferred thing that they like to gamble on, by the time they develop a really big gambling problem, they will gamble on anything. So I think that also might be one way to look at different addictions in that when, you know, there may be a preferred substance of abuse, but by the time you've reached like full blown clinical addiction, it may not really matter what it is. Like, so then, so yeah. So then, is there a final common pathway? <laughs> because is 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 addiction a disease, as in one disease? In which case, what we want to do is address the disease and not all the different mechanisms how drugs of abuse may get you to that point, right? Because for for opioids, maybe there is a good thing about opioids in that they are very good at pain relief. Right, but we want to prevent the fact that people become addicted to opioids when they have to take it post surgery, for example. And so we want to address. We don't want to stop opioids from doing their job at pain relief. We want to stop opioids from doing their job at making people addicted to to opioids. And those may be very different things because if addiction is a single disease, then perhaps we can address that. The fact that people. A lot, most people can take drugs and nothing happens, but some people take drugs and then, but become into some disease state that is the disease of addiction. Well, one thing I'd say to that, and I'm sure Matt might have something to say on this too, is that even though 
different addictions may, in their end stage, look phenomenologically the same, as in like their behavior may look very similar, the roots to that place could be very, very different, um, both in terms of behavioral vulnerability and in terms of neurobiological mechanisms. So, um, in terms of trying to like target the sort of final common pathway of addiction, that may not really work without considering, you know, individual trajectories, uh, both in terms of the drug that they're taking and why they've ended up there. So, again, most, this is something that gets said a lot clinically, you know, you don't very often have just pure addiction. Like people who have addiction problems also very commonly have other psychiatric comorbidities. And the addiction may be contributing to or a byproduct of those other psychiatric issues. But until the addiction is under control, it becomes really difficult to treat that person's bipolar disorder or major depression or anxiety. And the, the two become somewhat hopelessly intertwined. Um, so the, the idea is addiction a disease. Addiction could be the symptom of many diseases. It certainly causes changes in the brain that make it difficult for the individual to stop acting or behaving, thinking a certain way. Um, so in as much as we feel that psychiatric disorders are really sort of functional changes in behavior caused by at least some contributing neurobiology of the brain, addiction does fall into that camp. But um, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a thorny issue, and I think conceptualizing it as, as a disease really helps some individuals, but doesn't really help others. And so I'm very wary of um, being mindful of, of you know, how labeling it as a disease can have a positive and negative impacts. But it's not a thing. I mean, we brought up sort of the, the cancer you know, analogy, right. and the thing is, diagnosing cancer is quite simple, uncontrolled cell growth, whereas the diagnosis for drug addiction is... You know, how many of these criteria, these symptoms, do you end up satisfying within a particular window? And it's graded. And the complement of behavioral symptoms you have for one person's addiction could be completely distinct, you know, set of symptoms towards another individual. And so in that sense, it's kind of tricky to say if there is going to be a single final path. Because each person's addiction could, in theory at least, be caused by different changes in different brain regions with completely different behavioral outcomes, uh, which we then or we, the clinicians, will diagnose as substance use disorders. The same thing could be argued about almost any psychiatric disorder because of the way they're diagnosed. Um, so the same thing with major depression, same thing with bipolar disorder. It's, you know, satisfying X out of Y criteria for a minimum period of two weeks or, you know, X period within six months. So, and, you know, when you, you know, interact with psychiatrists, like, you know, this, this is the way in which we need our diagnoses to function so that we can, you know, have a practice that makes sense. So, yeah, I'm sorry, neuroscientists, you don't like it, but that's that's what the clinical reality is. And further compartmentalizing things in subcategories of disorders, some people really think that's beneficial, other people kind of hate it because you end up just, you know, splitting hairs so much. And um, but Some of this can be worked out at the mechanistic level by looking at things the way you've been doing yeah, with those, yes. assays and region-specific types of things and looking at the sort of confluence and integration of sensory cues and how they affect 
behavior. Um, and, and so that I, I think is a yeah. Um, so I think in terms of one of the things we've been doing, looking at manipulation that uh, can reflect or best reflects arguably um, drug addiction, which would be uh, drug self-administration, so animals' volitional intake of a chemical substance. Um, and there are certainly one of the amazing things about the addiction field is that they, they are constantly innovating. So one of the things that we need, I think, to build into our models going forward is choice between addictive substance and some something else. Um, and that came up uh, a recent... It was really a theme, I think, of this year's Winter Conference on Brain Distortion, all the addiction panels. They were emphasizing the importance of that. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have a lot clearer idea of at least what we what we don't think a good model of drug addiction is. So we can agree that, you know, the animal should be able to have some choice over when it takes drug, um, that the idea that there should be something else it can do instead of taking drug, and so we can, you know, would it rather take drug rather than take sucrose or play with a friend or um, have sex or whatever whatever it is to, to, to look at that sort of draw of one behavior over another. And we'd like to see measures of relapse, um, you know, after a period of time, and we'd like to see continued, pun- you know, the, taking part in this behavior, even though you're getting punished for it. When we think about other addictions like gambling addiction, it is a lot harder to figure out what you want an animal model of gambling behavior to look like. Um, and this is, you know, a sort of trap, if you like, that we fell into originally by thinking that we could, you know, develop a model of risky decision-making and just say, okay, well, animals that make more risky decisions, maybe they're going to be the ones that are vulnerable to gambling disorder. And um, something that, you know, I tried to intimate in the talk today is that when you actually speak to psychiatrists working with folks with gambling disorder, that, that doesn't really cut it. I mean, what you've got to look at is, you know, things like things that are measured by the gambling-related cognition scale, which are um, beliefs about, you know, the independence or lack thereof of probabilistic events. So believing in things like the hot hand fallacy or, um, you know, the, you know, if you that if you keep seeing a particular pattern of events, uh, even though maths tells you this is just happening by chance, you believe that there's a pattern there, even when there isn't a pattern there. Um, these kind of aberrant cognitions about sort of decision-making in uncertain environments are actually much better predictors of um, gambling disorder development and severity than, say, you know, can you correctly solve this sort of cost-benefit decision-making under uncertain tasks. So how stable are those things for individuals? Are they sometimes are people like really have this really terrible uh, view of probability and chance in one domain and then are perfectly fine in others? Or is this a general stable thing that's a property of the way they deal with? So certainly, um, folks have tried through kind of through like almost cognitive behavioral therapy to. You know, address some of these aberrant cognitions, um, and it's it's sort of difficult. But the I believe that the current sort of thinking is that by targeting them, if you if you do get people to think more clearly about uncertain outcomes, you do end up with better treatment outcomes. We should so, teach our children statistics. Um, <laughs> or yeah, Bayesian inference. But there's you know there's there's a whole branch of cognitive psychology sort of showing that actually trying to train people formally in statistics doesn't stop them from making mistakes that rely on cognitive heuristics. Like people, um, and it, 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 
But it works much better if you can provide concrete examples of things. So rather than talking about, you know, P of 0.6, you, you talk about, you know, this is 6 out of 10. You know, you, you, you try and frame things much more in the concrete than in the abstract. Um, that works with students as well. Yeah. Um, Sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it certainly works much better, much better with me. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... If we think about um, what we'd want, like a, a, a sort of a gambling model to look like in animals, it's you know just because they, they show a certain decision making pattern that they you know if they prefer risky outcomes to um, kind of less risky ones, does that necessarily mean they're vulnerable to gambling disorder, or does it mean they're not very good at decision making, or does it mean they're vulnerable to substance use disorder, and do these things matter, etc., etc., etc. And you know, one of the things we'd love to be able to do is to show sort of predictive validity in our models. Be like, okay, well, we know that this drug is used to treat gambling disorders, so let's like pop this into this model of decision making. And you know, if it makes, if it causes a behavioral change, and we can make some connection between that behavioral change and an improvement in in sort of gambling like or vulnerability gambling like thinking or behavior, then great. Therapies for well, no, there aren't. That's okay. sort of basically the problem. So we can never truly validate any of our, our models. So that's why we ended up using, um, sort of doing the opposite, which is using an agent that at least there is a balance of evidence to suggest that these dopamine DT3 agonists, when given to patients with um, movement disorders, and even when given to folks uh, who, who don't have any kind of severe Parkinson's, um, can precipitate gambling disorder and impulse control disorders, we then say, okay, well, if, if this drug can cause gambling disorder, at least in some folks, then can it cause an increase in gambling-like behavior in our animal models? So it's kind of like the opposite of, it's a weird pseudo-predictability, but that's sort of the best that we can do right now. You have some really interesting data that you showed today where you're talking about the sort of a vulnerability of perturbing the dopamine system during sort of acquiring behavior. Yeah. And I was wondering just sort of from a translational perspective, is that something to sort of think about where... And also from a developmental standpoint of, you know, gambling disorders and stuff. And uh, again, people are going to be drinking while, while gambling, you know, is there any evidence of if you do some gambling and there is no drinking, you don't necessarily develop the problematic stuff. Is there some sort of enhancement of the dopamine system that's then sort of creating this feedback loop where you are sort of accentuating these and, and the thing is, you have these persistent, you know, effects. So if you did the perturbation, you know, giving the D2, D3 agonist during acquisition, the deficits continue even well beyond the, the treatment of that. And yeah, I guess, what can we do? Like, is it, at that point, if you have this gambling disorder, are you sort of screwed? Like, can you, what, can what can you, you do to reverse it? it? Um, that is the million dollar question. Um, at the moment, so we haven't we haven't done any manipulations ourselves. Um, when we've given dopamine agonist drugs while animals have been learning the tasks, but and then showing that you know even after they stop learning, they show persistent deficits. We haven't tried reversing those yet, but that's obviously something we do want to do. We are trying to test whether a variety of compounds can prevent the development of some of that gambling-like behavior in response to dopamine agonist treatment. Um, or either halt it or reverse it or, or totally prevent it. Um, because we're always interested in, you know, the clinical relevance of any manipulation, we haven't tried dopamine antagonists because you'd never give that to a patient with movement disorders. <laughs> so, you know, anyone who's clinically being given rapinirole or pronopexol, you're, 
you know, most of those people have Parkinson's, or some of them have fibromyalgia or lustrous leg syndrome, but you're probably not going to give them dopamine and brains. Um, and you but definitely wouldn't give them to folks with Parkinson's. Have you done work with DBS and manipulated risk? We have, yes. Um, so we, uh, this was a grant that sort of came out of interest in the subthalamic nucleus, um, which is an area that is targeted in Parkinson's disease, uh, so with deep brain stimulation. And that there is evidence to suggest that DBS could increase impulsivity itself. So uh, when clinicians are trying to evaluate, well, I've got this patient on some kind of dopamine replacement therapy, they're not doing very well in terms of impulse control problems. If I take them off the medication, we're going to lose the efficacy of the anti-Parkinsonia effect. So maybe we should think about DBS instead. Is you know, so, and then there are folks saying, well, you know, maybe the DBS is going to cause more problems than it's solved because you could end up with impulse control problems and you know caused by the DBS. And then what are you going to do? Um, so when we review the literature, most of the evidence there are case studies showing you know uh, de uh, development of an impulse control disorder after deep brain stimulation of the STN, but they are, again, they're mostly case studies. When you look at you know, bigger trials, there doesn't seem to be a significant issue. Um, but again, a lot of the literature relies on, or the papers are sort of echo back to the fact that lesions to the subthalamic nucleus in animals increase impulsivity. It's like, well, yes, they, they do, but a lesion isn't the same as DBS. And, you know, that's not necessarily the same as development of a iatrogenic gambling disorder in, in a human. So we actually wanted to see, okay, well, in our tightly controlled animal task, um, what happens if we do STN-DBS? Um, does it you know, increase risky choice? Does it decrease risky choice? Is it completely without effect? And actually what we found is that um, animals that start out with a bias towards the risky options when they receive, these are otherwise healthy animals, so they didn't have any damage to their dopamine system, but they actually did get better. Their decision-making improved while they were on stimulation, um, and then it got worse when we took them off. So at least in as much as as we can contribute, I mean, it was it was not a huge sample size, um, but it was a very, it was a well-controlled within subjects design experiment um, that DBS had no negative effects on decision-making um, in those animals. So uh, I think, you know, although DBS has been approved as a therapy for you know, many years, you know, decades in Parkinson's, there's now a lot of discussion of its use in psychiatric disorders, simply because we're kind of running out of options. You know, for folks the drugs don't work for, there's, you know, there's not a lot of uh, novel uh, drugs for psychiatric disease coming out of pharmaceutical companies right now. Um, and DBS, yes, it's very invasive to implant the electrodes, but um, it could have enormous therapeutic benefits. So I, I know that there's now DBS for OCD that has been trialed. Um, DBS for addiction has been tried. Um, so, uh, so we may be seeing more of that kind of intervention. But yeah, in, at least in Parkinson's, at least in some Parkinsonian folks who developed impulse control disorders as a result of dopaminergic medication. DBS of the subthalamic nucleus has proven to be a good alternative. So they've managed to step down off the drug, um, increase, you know, step up the DBS and get rid of the impulse control problem and maintain the benefit. So that's 
was that across both sexes? You you, you presented oh, some really <laughs> yeah. provocative data today, and I guess you know how is our potential understanding of I don't know how the brain works, uh, and at least in the context of the dopamine system. Yeah, that was a major surprise. So um, RDB study was done in all males, and I think uh, like a lot of uh, behavioral neuroscience labs that were established over the last 10, 20 years, we were using exclusively male animals, and uh, not, I wouldn't say it's not that we didn't think about it, but we were just, we just told the party line that, oh, if we use females, we'd need separate operant boxes or some such, you know, the boxes in which we run our behavioral tasks because the, you know, the, the female pheromones and the male would upset the male behavior. We'd never get statistically significant data out of them. Um, and this was all tolerated right up until the NIH basically said, nope, <laughs> you're just going to have to use male and female animals. And I think, again, this is just one of those, um, for rightly or wrongly, and I know it, it, that that change has not been without its, its uh, critics, and some of those criticisms are very valid. But, you know, one of those examples where when, when the US decides to make a change in the way it does its research, it has a sort of like trickle-down effect uh, across... You know, uh, you know, almost every country is then like, oh, maybe we should do the same thing. Um, because, you know, here is such a big driver of, of innovation and, and, and research funding. Uh, so, and we also started using transgenic animals and the idea of just killing all the girl rats because they were girls as a girl <laughs> just felt somewhat wrong. Um, so, yeah, and so we were just like, well, let's see what happens when we start putting females into our operant boxes. And I can say that it didn't make a damn bit of difference. So as long as, and I've heard other researchers say this as well, as long as the males and females are housed together in the colony rooms, right from the moment they arrive. So it's not like you have a colony room full of males and then suddenly you drop in 20 females. If you do that, that is going to cause a really big shift in their behavior. But if from the moment they've really landed in your animal unit, they have been housed in the same kind of environment as females, and the operant boxes they experience have always had both sexes in them, then we haven't had any problem using the same equipment for both sexes. And if you think about it, it's a much more naturalistic environment. It's not like there's whole colonies of male rats with no females in them, like roaming around the wild. Like boarding school? <laughs> Let's not get into English boarding school. Like that's, that explains a lot <clears throat> Brexit. Um, uh, why that should be discouraged. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it really surprised me when we started doing this research. I thought that there might be Say maybe female rats might show uh, greater risky choice on the rat gambling task, which would kind of match the Iowa gambling task data that you see quite often um, reported for human subjects. But you know, when it got down to neurobiology, that uh, come on, dopamine is going to be doing exactly the same thing in both sexes. There just might be some superficial difference, or maybe you know, one might have a qualitatively bigger or smaller effect, but overall the direction of effect is the same. I did not expect to find qualitatively different effects of manipulating the dopamine system in males and females. You know, like stark night and day, you know, inactivate this pathway in males, you get a decrease in premature responding, and activate it in females, you get an impairment in choice. Like, what? Because <laughs> everything that I, or most of what we know, neuroscience perspective about the function of these monoamine systems, like but the vast, vast majority of it comes from studying male animals. 
and the assumption that it's basically female, the same in females. And there have been those, you know, like Jill Becker, who's been sort of Lisa Galea, have been waving this flag for some time, being like, hello, you've really got to think about sex differences. And it's just complicated. And now it's like, yeah, it is complicated. Now we're all going to have to deal with it and swim in the sea. So these were dread-based manipulations from that? Yes. Um, so one, one thing that is always niggling away in the back of my mind when it's dreads, is that we could be looking at differences in viral tropism. So maybe uh, neurons of male animals, um, because of the expression of whatever antigens or other cellular markers, might be more effective at taking up the virus than those of females. And that is certainly something that we are going to be checking. And, you know, the data I presented today, you know, the animals are still alive. Um, as you know, they're, they're only just dead. So we are doing the confirmation of the immune chemistry um, now. So, but, you know, and maybe we will see like a huge difference in, um, you know, the transfection efficacy. But I, I would be surprised, but it wouldn't be the first time that I've been surprised. Um, but I, I, I still struggle to see, you know, if, unless, unless it's like expressing in a totally different set of neurons. I mean, if it's just, okay, you get more robust expression in males and less robust expression in females, I would expect, again, again, a quantitatively different um, pattern of behavior. So we'd get a bigger decrease in impulsivity in the males than we would in the female. Not like a totally different behavioral measure that was effective. Um, that, you know, unless we really did something nuts um, in these animals, like we accidentally have targeted completely different dopamine signaling pathways, and you know, maybe we have, um, but certainly the pilot data wouldn't suggest that. Um, but if you know anything other than that, and it's like, yeah, the, these projections are doing fundamentally different things in men and females, um, and it may not have been the first time that we've seen something like that. With, but again, most of it recently has been threats because we've been trying to work up the the dreads technique, but other people have found the same thing with pharmacology, that dopaminergic drugs, um, I think it was dopamine antagonists improve decision-making in male rats, but they don't affect that in female rats, whereas dopamine agonists only impair decision-making in females, but don't affect that, affect that in males. So there could be like a, a difference in just basal tone or in sensitivity to manipulations of the dopamine system that but behaviorally, in your gambling task, you don't see any intrinsic differences between males and females? Not in each individual analysis, no. So one of the things that we want to do once we've run enough females through is do a bigger meta-analysis, because we know there's a huge amount of individual variation just within, particularly when we talk about our cued rat gambling task, you can have animals that are like very, very good and very, very bad within like a split of 16. Um, so not seeing a huge sex difference when you're just comparing 16 to 16 or 32 to 32 may not be that surprising. Um, but what, we, what I'd really like to do is compare like, you know, 100 and 100 or 150 and 150 and see if there is actually like a population skew towards, you know, more risky or less risky. Um, it, you know, one prediction that we had based on, you know, the hypersensitivity of the female dopamine system is that they may be more vulnerable to the effect of cues. Um, and depending which cohorts we choose to compare, um, sometimes it looks like that, that effect is going to drop out and sometimes it doesn't. But I think we just need like a much larger sample size to be, to be sure. 
Um, and, you know, one of the nice things about having all these amazing students and access to lots of operant chambers is we, we do, without too much effort, easily generate like data from hundreds of rats a year. So as long as we collect all of this and you know, apply appropriate modeling data, we should be able to get this. See, and this is the last thing because we're running so severely out of time now, but I can't help but ask you this. So you also have this line of work looking at uh, TBI and effects yes. on cocaine self-administration, mm -hmm. and you chalk a lot of that up to neuroinflammation and effect and potentially signaling cascade and effector mechanisms that are... It's traumatic brain injury. Yeah, yeah, traumatic brain injury, right, and specifically frontal traumatic brain injury. How, uh, first of all, how do you even begin to pursue that <laughs> and what right. are your ideas about that in yeah. terms of effective mechanisms? So I mean the reason we started that whole line of research was because we were, you know, talking to our addiction psychiatry team at UBC and I I'm sure I'm not alone in, in saying this that when you're doing animal research you really want to keep an eye on the translational appeal of it. Um, if you're doing the kind of research that we do, which is trying to model cognitive behaviour in animals and doing behavioral pharmacology, you, you always say at the end of your grants, you hope this is going to be important from a translation perspective. So the flip side of that is that when someone comes to you and says like, hey, I'm in a clinic and I'm seeing that a lot of these addiction, you know, these the, the people that I'm treating had this undiagnosed traumatic brain injury, do you think that could have anything to do with uh, the addiction um, onset? Then even though I was, and I was still would not consider myself a TBI expert, I certainly am supposed to be someone studying addiction and impulse control problems. Um, and this seemed like a very clinically relevant thing that we could try and address. And when I looked into the literature, um, most folks, uh, most research groups that are studying traumatic brain injury are focused on trying to prevent the development of a lesion or trying to restore motor or memory function acutely within the first one to two weeks. There are very few groups that are looking at the long-term psychiatric sequelae of TBI. And indeed, there are um, folks who believe that the psychiatric problems that are rampant in TBI populations, particularly major depression, suicidality, impulsive aggression, are somewhat sort of quote-unquote secondary to the primary injury, as in like, oh, your life sucks because you've got a brain injury and so you develop this psychiatric disease. Rather than thinking, well, you've hit the brain, the brain is damaged, what happens when you get you know, psychiatric disorders are caused by neurobiological changes in the brain. So I don't think we should be terribly surprised that TBI can be associated with, you know, the onset and direct cause of uh, psychiatric problems. But it's always really difficult to pass some clinical data. So, you know, highly impulsive people, you could argue, might just be more likely to get a TBI. So showing enriched impulse control disorders and impulse control problems in TBI populations, that could be, um, rather than a causal relationship, that could just be, uh, well, TBI not causing the impulsivity, but the impulsivity causing the TBI. So which one comes first? So that's why we started doing this kind of research, just to figure out if we could show definitively that TBI can affect impulse control. And I think we've done that now in um, two independent studies, and there's been another group that has started looking at this. And the lead author, Cole von der Haar, now has his own lab down in West Virginia, where he's studying this. Um, and he was sort of postdocing with me. So he brought his TBI expertise to the lab, and then we sort of combined it with our knowledge of how to model impulse control decision-making predictions. Um, and I, I believe we were the first to show pretty definitively, again, that, like, Mild, pretty mild 
it's still surgical TBI, so it's still impacting the surface of the brain, um, doing a craniotomy and then, and then impacting with a piston. But if you lower the impact of that impact, haha, if you lower the strength of that impact such that, you know, when you're looking at the tissue slices, you can't, you know, it just looks like an artifact section. There's no, like, big cavitation. There's no hole that appears in the brain. Like, the brain actually looks superficially and grossly normal, yet these animals take twice as much cocaine um, as sham operative controls. So I guess I'm interested in, are there dots that you can connect between the mechanisms that may invoke those kinds of changes that you may or may not be following up on? I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how much of this is consumed in your lab, but are there strains from that that can populate or that you imagine are going to connect with some of the sex differences and some of the other oh, absolutely. sort of... I mean, I think that the, the story of sex differences in TBI research is, is pretty well established because estrogen and progesterone could actually be neuroprotective. Um, so unfortunately, I think the clinical trials on that just, uh, they, they didn't pan out at phase three, so they actually cancelled um, the clinical trials. I think it was for progesterone, but God, I can't remember now, so I'm hoping I've got that wrong. Um, uh, try, trying to actually prevent the development of, um, of a lesion after a brain injury. But, I mean, my one of my major interests, actually, is looking at the relationship with, or maybe, you know, will either do this or Colwell, between TBI and gambling disorder, because I think it's really understudied. There's only really a couple of papers looking at um, TBI and cocaine dependence, uh, and if we think about um, things like the number of uh, electronic gambling machines that might be on uh, air force bases or in um, you know army bases throughout the world, uh, and yet you've got people who are going out and perhaps getting concussion and getting brain injury, and they're being brought back into their quote-unquote safe environment, but you know there's this potentially hugely addictive machine sitting over there in the corner, which makes uh, a lot of money for the base, but could be, you know, if, if there is, uh, if, if the relationship between TBI and gambling disorder looks the same as the relationship between TBI and cocaine dependency, then I think that could be a really, really good problem. Thank you for joining us, Catherine and Stanley. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.